0: Thank you for listening to the Hillsview Men's Ministry. We are a group of men building relationships to equip and encourage each other. It's uh, good to be here, and I wanted to say I know a, a number of you have uh, been faithful praying for the, and this is the thing with way too long a name, the Alliance for Therapeutic Choice and Scientific Integrity, which we just call the Alliance, and. Uh, A week ago this morning, 30 minutes into our session, our big question was uh, we had some folks from our LDS brethren in Salt Lake City who did not want to put a reference to the Judeo-Christian heritage in our mission statement. And I asked you to pray about that about four, three, four Sundays ago and exactly uh, we started at 8.32 the board voted and accepted the new mission statement and that's a week ago today in Orlando, Florida so the Lord keeps working and if you look at the handout you're getting right now, that new mission statement is um, right in the middle of the sheet and you'll see it says the alliance exists to encourage human flourishing by promoting a more complete truth informed by judeo-christian values and that was the big hang-up they did not want to put that in our mission statement and the gentleman who he's the lawyer on our our board he happens to be LDS from Salt Lake City and he started talking yesterday a week ago yesterday in the morning and all these reasons etc cetera, etc cetera. and just as the morning went on we just felt his energy depleting. And he was going to talk all day. He was going to take us through more than the news. They took us through our, uh, our uh, what's the legal documents, not articles of incorporation, but the bylaws. He was going to take us through the bylaws and this and that and the next thing and get us all straightened up. He lost his energy. By noon, he would, he had nothing more to say. It's amazing. So. Somebody made the motion that we go into our strategic planning thing, which we did, and part of the strategic planning was changing the mission statement, which we worked on then that afternoon and a bunch of other things. And took the decided to take the vote Saturday morning. Went till noon yet Saturday and thirty-two minutes into the morning a week ago today, fellas. Amen. Yeah. Praise the Lord. Yep. All right. Um Wow, a couple other things I'm just going to point out. I, you, you, the first paragraph was a summary of what you heard me say the last two times. The Christian community must be a comforting, welcoming setting for those with unwanted sexual attractions, behaviors or <coughs> dislike, versus sex. Compromising God's truth about sexuality and family is not an option. The pain, isolation, and injury related to the distortions of God's design require compassion modeled by Jesus. Who proclaimed liberty to the captives? Ate with sinners, associated, and blessed the poor. Despised, rejected, and broken, loved first, and then taught. When people were anxious to listen. And just uh, if you just turn this over, all of you are not going to read the backside. But this is a commentary. On, uh, some of you may be familiar with the Colson Center for Christian Worldview. I find them very, very uh, encouraging and uh, this is one of John Stone Street's breakpoints, and he goes through and reviews a book written in 1939 by this fellow named J.D. Unwin and he's a sociologist and if you read that, I don't have to talk anything, I don't have to tell you anything about what happens to the culture when we distort sexuality from the plan God had, okay? But it's a great summary. i when I saw that, I thought, oh, my, I'm putting that on the back side of the handout today just because it is a wonderful summary of what happens when we do that. <clears throat> All right. So today we're going to talk about plumbing the living water pipeline. See, sir, the woman said, you've done nothing. You have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Wow. I want to start this morning because I know that every man in this room is a conduit, a pipeline of God's grace. That's what we're here for. Part of being a pipeline, being a conduit of grace, of course, is recognizing when we had no grace at all. And we were desperate and we were hurting. And I want to take us through that because I believe that Jesus, of course, showed the way by humbling himself and being a sacrifice, complete sacrifice for us. Our role is to humble ourselves and recognize that we needed to be put together, need and needed. Be put together by the grace of Jesus Christ. So, as we do that, I'm going to ask you to do a rather difficult thing. I'd rather you just think about this and not talk with anybody about it, but it's going to be different for every one of us. I want to go through and I want us to go through our own experience of the poverty of spirit, what we call the poverty of spirit. And we have all had the experience of poverty of spirit. Now, I had the blessing this week of having friends, Ron and Pat DeWeird, up from Rock Valley, Iowa, where we lived for 29 years. And Ron shared yesterday. I didn't even tell him. I, I didn't tell you yesterday that I was going to speak today, did I? Didn't, I didn't let him know that until he went to bed last night. And, and he shared when he went through a time of his life that was really poverty of spirit. And it was amazing. Of course, God had this all planned. It's in my curriculum for today. I was going to have all of you go through that. So to start out with, it's an internal experience. What was or is your stream of living water, and how did you arrive at the quiet waters? And the first thing i uh, was there trauma in any time in your life, in your memory? And basically, we start our memory, uh, conscious memory, two and three years old, related to being left out or not fitting in. You experience dramatic or excessive criticism, maybe from adults, maybe from peers. It's painful. Abusive words came your way And they hurt. Abusive actions may have come your way. And you're physically injured even. Emotional, physical and or sexual abuse, molestation. Brother Cal was willing to share with us the first season, season our first session. Yeah. And it hurts and you cried out so long, what's the matter with me? What's wrong with me? There must be something wrong with me. They wouldn't do this to me if if there wasn't something wrong with me. Childhood neglect, maybe not on purpose at all. Maybe a dad who just didn't have time for us. Or maybe he worked 85 hours a week or whatever the case may be. Or didn't know how to say, I love you. So many men in our culture difficult. Born that way lies. Born that way lies. Sexual attractions and arousal patterns are absolute. That's the born that way lie. And some of us got mixed up in that and weren't sure about anything. Including our sexual expression. If what I just did, if what we just did here is extremely painful, I'm going to tell you just like a doctor would tell you if you had a stroke or a heart attack, better stop by and maybe we better work through some of that, okay? I'm probably not going to be the guy who's going to do that anymore. 71. I'm taking up a fair amount of my time trying to work with this group that I'm talking about. But there certainly are people in the area who can be very, very helpful in one way or another. And I want to say one more thing. A little later on, I think i referenced reference a guy by the name of Dr. Michael Davidson. He's a Brit. He lives in Northern Ireland. And, uh, he shared with us, he's on our board of directors, he's also the director of the European Alliance, which does a different, completely different name, and I can't even say it, it's it's too long as well. But Dr. Davidson shared that he was convinced when he was about 15 or 16 or 17 years old, right in there, that he absolutely was homosexual. And he shared with us in the board meeting last week, he said, one Man asked about me, how I was doing, listened to me, and continued to listen for four years. And I figured out at the end of the four years that I was not a identified homosexual, that I was one lonely and hurting teenager. And that was Dr. Davidson's story. Dr. Davidson heads up a group now, That consists of 21 nations. And because it's so hard to do this in Europe, their bank account, by law, the bank had to close them out. So they went to Hungary. No, Poland. Now they're banking a Polish bank. And by the way, listening to Dr. Davidson, Poland is pretty encouraging. The Judeo-Christian ethic has revived in their government in an unbelievable way. So the Lord is at work, people. The Lord's at work. You know, um, if you think, if we think that where we are in our culture is impossible, then go home and read Judges 19. And you'll see that things are even worse in Israel in Judges 19. Yeah. Okay, God who sees, the God who sees, I love that, the God who sees, the poor, the needy, and he delivers the living water. Psalm 86, hear, O Lord, and answer me, for I am poor and needy. Guard my life, for I am devoted to you. You are my God, Savior, servant, who trusts in you. And there's another Psalm, 34. This poor man called, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. Oh, wow. The Lord heard and saved his servant. Now, I'm not a Hebrew scholar. I have had no theological education whatsoever. Uh, But I can read, and I'm reading commentaries that said the Hebrew word here is Hasid. I don't know if that's pronounced correctly. Hasid. The one who is and recognizes that he is without resources. Wow. The one who is and recognizes that he is without resources to affect or influence his own deliverance. Life, safety, and well-being is dependent on God. Now, I think all of us know enough about foreign, our different foreign languages and different cultures that a word can have a lot of nuances of meaning it blew me away that that one word hasid included all of that and that's um, that that is related to that save your servant who trusts in you it's it's the verb that really kind of replaces save there Uh, except for in English we have a few more lines to figure out what that one word meant isn't that amazing that when we see our situation and we recognize that we're without resources and maybe that pain from being 4 years old or 7 years old or 11 years old or 15 years old maybe that pain that's when we came to ourselves when God came to us we realized we did not have the resources I would say every man sitting here is sitting here because you realize you didn't have the resources at some point in your life or points in our life because the Lord takes us on a stairway, doesn't he? One challenge, the next challenge, the next challenge, yes. Yeah, wow. Well, I think I'm I uh, i think going to get into here, oh my. A God who sees the poor and the broken. I just, I just love this illustration. This illustration. The lady's name is Hagar, and she was connected to a lady named Sarah. Now, I thought I had this uh, slide set up to pull one of these lines down at a time, but obviously I missed this one. So we'll walk through them. They're all up there. Sarah was a socially exalted character, married, of course, to the gentleman of the promise, Abraham, right? The great covenant. I will make of you a great nation. Now, we're just talking at our table. I don't know why this topic came up, but somehow we got talking about what it was like to be between 70 and 84 at our table. And then we talked about our relatives who were 94, etc. And uh, I don't know why it comes up in a group like this. Why does that topic show up? I don't know. But of course, Sarah was pretty aware how old Abraham was, and she was too, right? Okay. But she was a socially exalted lady, Married, rich, free, child of the promise. She was beautiful. The Bible says she was a beautiful woman. Yeah. Heir to God's great nation, right, in the promise. Barren. How are you going to be a great nation if you're barren? Ain't going to work, is it? Impatient. She hatches a better plan. Husband listens to her. Now, once in a while, we blame our wives when we should take responsibility. But in this case, husband probably didn't do what he should have done. And a pregnancy results. Of course, Sarah gets angry. Then she blames her husband, you miserable character. You made a sex slave out of this woman, and, and now she's uppity on me. Yeah. Abraham washes his hands. Or, uh, yeah. Abraham washes his hand in response to Sarah, of course, and then Sarah mistreats Hagar. Hagar, ooh. Socially demonized slave girl. Um, One of the commentaries said, probably from Africa, more than from Asia or or, uh, Central, Central Asia there. Hagar's not consulted about anything. Hagar has absolutely no rights. Not only is she a slave, she's a woman right okay so forced to be a sex slave haha she's fertile little contrast to her uh, owner right she's pregnant and then she gets uppity because she's pregnant and Sarah couldn't get pregnant and Hagar flees she disappears she's stuck in the wilderness now i have a question for you who are the two women after eve before the birth of christ to whom god spoke directly through an angel who are the two women in biblical history to whom god spoke directly through an angel before christ was born and after the fall in eden who are the two women Hagar and Mary, the Virgin Mary. The only two women that Bible records from the fall to the birth of Christ who God spoke to directly. Doesn't that make the shivers go up and down your back? So we have till Christ was born Eve, Hagar, and the Virgin Mary. To whom does God always show compassion, community, and respect? To those at the bottom of the barrel, or as one of uh, my book says, where grace pools like water at the lowest levels. And that's when we begin to become new when the Holy, we're open to the Holy Spirit. Think back to your own experiences, as I had you do this morning, in your own history. The Holy Spirit puts somebody, something in your path, right? Just like Doctor Taylor said, one man who listened to him for four years wasn't any relative, wasn't a, but he was a man in the community who loved him. God knows, God finds, God asks. Hagar, servant of Sarah. Remember what God asked her? Anybody remember what God asked Hagar, where do you come from? She's in the wilderness. She's without food and drink in the wilderness. And God comes to her and says, Hagar, where have you come from? And where are you going? Just this morning, before we started, I had a wonderful conversation. And some of you have had that experience where you've had a, a niece, a daughter, a son, a nephew, a grandchild who declared they were homosexual in one way or another. Or or now the, the big one is transgender, hate their birth sex, right? Yeah. And you know what? If God asks these questions, what should we be doing? Asking these questions. These two questions. Wonderful questions. And once we ask these questions, like my fourth grade teacher used to say, God gave you two ears and one tongue. Which do you expect he, he wants you to use most? When we ask questions and we get these to work in way, just like Dr. Davidson said, four years this man listened to him and he came to a knowledge of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit wiped away all of that same-sex attraction stuff for him. Yeah. I love this Psalm 40. There it says it. You've not desired sacrifice and meal offering. You've opened my eyes. You've not required burnt offering and sin offering. Wow. Listening is loving. I'll figure out how to do this. Move this at the same time. So hang in. Say to him, he just came home from college and said his identity is homosexual. Or to her when she says, "I'm a trans." What do I? What do I do? What do I do? Divine ministry, calling, task. I have to be perfectly honest with you. The background I came from. Uh, we didn't use the ministry near, word ministry near as often as I hear uh, here, and that's okay. We use the word calling and task. And I, I personally believe that everyone who belongs to Jesus has a divine ministry calling or task. I don't care what word you use. But somehow that, in various traditions, has really gotten assigned to the clergy only. Well, that, that's, that's not part of the game. Part of the game is belonging to Jesus. And then we have a calling, mission, and task. And the God who finds and then he comes, finds and he comes, just like with Hagar, okay? So we got different prepositions we do, right? So we do ministry or our tasks are to somebody, all right? That's a preposition. Or sometimes we use preposition for, we do ministry or tasks or calling for someone, right? And then there's another preposition, and that preposition is with. Oh my goodness! When Hagar was in the wilderness, did you see, Think she experienced a to, for, or with experience? Did somebody tell her what to do, or did somebody tell her, if you'll do this for yourself, maybe things will be better? What did God say to her? He said, I am here with you. Where have you come from? And where are you going? Relational stance, of course, if we're going to do something to somebody, we're going to teach them how to do it right, and we're paternalistic. We inform and we instruct them. We start out by instructing them. You know, your view of same-sex attraction is absolutely wrong. There's no such thing. Uh, This guy that talked in our breakfast group said that born that way is a myth. And so you got to know that born that way is a myth. And that's what we're going to start out doing. We're going to instruct them how to live right. How good does that work when you talk with your leftist friends? Very good. said what you're going to say. because That's probably the last conversation you're going to have. Absolutely. Thank you. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. Or we call this maternalistic. I'm going to do something for you. Okay. Uh, I'll be your caretaker. Here's how to fix yourself. I'll help you fix yourself, right? And I'll do it for you. And, of course, receive the reaction to that one. Oh, you think I'm helpless? I'll show you, right? And then, of course, there's this one. What God did to Hagar. I am here. I am with you. Where are you going? Yeah. Outcomes, of course. If you want to be, uh, um, uh, to be perfectly honest, our leftist friends are really good at being paternalistic. They'd like to oppress everything, but then that's how the devil works. He's always fighting that way. And then, of course, we can create codependence. Those of us who are familiar with chemical dependency and uh, the 12 steps in the AA movement, you know how to be codependent, and you realize that people can take responsibility for you, and then you have none for yourself, of course. And with incarnational relational stance, we see transformation. And by the way, this is, this is a, uh, the authors there, the book is called Geography of Grace, Doing Theology from Below. If any of you are interested um, I'm going to first tell you right away it's not an easy read it's a kind of book that I read pretty fast and I like to read a lot of books but it's the kind of book that made me stop and page back to a previous chapter and go does this really fit uh, these guys these guys are good um, I bet you Ron you heard uh, what's his name Joel, Joel Van Dyke because he, he preached in Trinity Rock Valley at one point yeah, in Guatemala. That's right. You, you've done the Guatemala thing, and he's in Guatemala. He was in the uh, slums. He, his ministry was in the slums in, of Guatemala. Yeah. And then there's another guy named Chris Rock, his, a colleague who wrote that book. One of the most difficult reads I've had, but boy, yeah, they really get to the bottom, of this whole idea of where grace flows. And uh, Jesus' priority, communion first, and then the then the explanation Communion, community rarely happens in a culture that feels compelled to defend and explain almost everything, particularly faith. Our friend here gave a great response. We're going to get to that. Jesus was asked 183 questions in the gospel record. He provided few direct answers. Three topics he answered directly. Those three were a question about his authority, I gave you this authority he answered that directly a question about being a king he answered that directly and a question about how to pray and we all know the answer to that we memorize that one right his response to 180 of the 183 questions recorded in the four gospels was a story a riddle dramatic theater additional questions or silence now help me out how many years did jesus walk on earth before his public ministry began 30. 30 30 years what did jesus do in the 30 years before he opened his mouth and began to teach who he was what do you think he did in 30 years My fourth grade teacher's advice. 30 years of it. And then he taught for how many years? 10 to 1. 10 years of listening. One year of answers. And then when he got questions, he got 183 questions the Bible records. And he only answered how many of them? Three. We got a ways to go, guys? We're gonna straighten up that college kid and tell them right away what's what's right and what's wrong, and, and that born that way myth, right? And so we're gonna start with that. Well, like we said earlier, that'll be your last conversation, you yeah. know. one does defines one's words and reveals one's true religion or ultimate direction of the heart. Religion uh, that's my kind of um, accumulated definition of religion. Direction of my heart. Primary controller of my life my worldview is evidenced first in my behavior and only secondarily in my words. Communion first, then explanation. Community really happens, and in... I, we had it. To... I had this up here already, didn't I? Do Did we have this slide? No. Yeah. I guess it got in here twice. That's what I get for going to the Buffalo Roundup yesterday morning. Leaving at <laughs> five o'clock in the morning. Didn't catch that. <laughs> yeah. Oh. Ron reminded me I'm over seventy. <laughs> happens more often. Okay, I like this story. This is a wonderful story. I can quickly get through this. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him, and Matthew got up and followed him. While well, Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house. Notice the sequence here. Two words, follow me, and the very next thing the gospel tells us is what? Let's have a party. Let's have a party. Many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, notice that? I just get a big kick out of that. They're just too scared to ask Jesus. They didn't want another one of them riddles. They didn't want another one of those questions asked back to them. Right? (laughs) Or a parable, where they had to go home and scratch their head and figure out what they were just told. Yeah. So... Pharisee says, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? The dregs of society pooling at the bottom. There's nobody that would hate it more. Some of you have seen that movie, that movie series called The. What's it called? And Matthew is featured. Chosen? The Chosen. The Chosen. Some of you seen, how many have seen The Chosen? Well, not too many. But I haven't seen all of it. I'm not sure why we saw part of it at one point. I should get back to it. But anyway, bottom line is. Um, these tax collectors were Jews who were regarded as traitors, of course, to the Romans, who taxed them excessively, and the Romans didn't mind one bit if the tax collector had a little pad in their pocket. Just, so you can imagine how well-respected they were. Uh, sort of like that phrase that came up five, six years ago, drain the swamp, right? This is the swamp. This is the bottom of the swamp. yeah. On hearing this, Jesus said, now this is kind of interesting, he didn't answer that question at all, because he wasn't asked the question. They didn't ask him a question. Not one of the questions he was asked. Not one of the 183. The disciples were asked this one. But Jesus answered. He said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. So go learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I'm not coming with call the righteous, but sinners. I hated that my being able to say I'm a sinner involves my being able to say I was broken and I couldn't fix it by myself. That's what it means to be a sinner. I'm broken and I can't fix it by myself. I can sure screw it up by myself, but I can't fix it. Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? In this scenario who are the damned? Who are the damned? Who are the damned in this scenario? Tax collectors and sinners, right? The religious authorities called them that. Doesn't that make them the damned? That's what the religious ups called them. Who are the religious front run- front runners? People asking the questions, right? If you ask the culture to look at this scenario, that's the answer we'd get. Oh, well, those are the leaders. That's it's a the pastor, the mega church pastor, etc., etc. Another one who's run amok I read this past week uh, with sexual behavior. Isn't that interesting? Asking permission to pray and perhaps lay hands on a struggler. Hmm. Who may have done that? Certainly wasn't the Pharisees and the scribes, was it? Did Jesus teach, fix, or join Matthew's band of buddies? We're back to our preposition here. Did Jesus teach, fix, or join Matthew's band of buddies? Or homies, as they say in the, in the Guatemala, in the uh, in the barrios where the the uh, uh, our, what do you call the the gangs of criminals? What's that word? The anyway, cartels. Cartels. Thank you very much. The cartels. Yeah. Matthew Matthew was a member of a cartel. Absolutely. But who was Jesus eating with? Who's he having a party with? You bet. And how did the religious leaders label the attendees at the meal hosted by Matthew? The homies in the cartel? Yeah. Those were the tax. were the sinners, tax collectors and sinners. Yeah. The hospitable community. I will be gracious and realize I may first have to live the good news. Before my words describing the good news will be believable. This is a quote. This is a marvelous quote, and I put it on here uh, for on purpose. Anybody in the room recognize the name Rosario Butterfield? Okay, thank you. Rosario Butterfield was a feminist expert teaching women's studies, and I I was going to look up the uh, the, uh, university, one one of the Ivy League schools in the East Coast, and I can't think of, do you remember what school she was teaching at? Okay. And she, um, she discovered somebody new in her neighborhood at one point and discovered they had a really common hobby. They both loved gardening. It was a man and his wife, and Rosaria was a single. No, she was lesbian, married to her partner, that's right. She was lesbian married to her partner at the time she met this couple. And they got off on gardening right away and just enjoyed each other's company so much. And so the couple invited her over for an, a meal after uh, after they were going to do some things. They traded some plants or something and planted in each other's gardens that afternoon. And they invited her in for a meal. And the gentleman suggested that they always open their meals with prayer. And so she politely... Deferred and found out at that meal that he happened to be a pastor and she was a pa- and his wife was his uh, pastor's wife and she was just floored because by this time she loved these people intensely she'd known them for about three or four months before this happened and she discovered they were Christians although she had suspected it when she started to look back bottom line of course they loved the Dickens out of this gal. She was, she's a doctorate in feminist studies. She's teaching at an Ivy League school. She's teaching feminist studies at an Ivy League school. And the Lord took a hold of her through the grace of this couple. The graciousness. Again, over years, I think three, four years. And the Lord got a hold of her. She's written a number of books. This is a quote out of her book, The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. I will be gracious and realize I may first have to live the good news before my words describing the good news will be believable. Now, I have a wonderful, I put this in here for a wonderful reason. When Rosario came to know the Lord, she had no use for psychotherapy. She came to know the Lord through the ministry of this pastor and his wife as they became dear friends. Rosario, of course, left her Her lesbian lover, uh, shortly about the time she gave her life to the Lord and let the Lord change her from the inside out, she got married to a man named Butterfield, and he's a pastor in a Presbyterian church, and she's a pastor's wife to this day. But she actually said in 2014, much to my chagrin when I read her, because I thought a lot of her, that she didn't think therapy had anything to do with helping people change that move away from an obsession with same sex marriage. Well, if you read the backside of the handout I gave you, the obsession with same sex marriage is really no different than all the other ways that we distort sexuality. Mm-hmm. Sexuality can be distorted in a thousand different ways, and it's not just same sex attraction. Okay, that's why I gave you that. But she didn't think therapy had anything to do with it. She has, of course, in her life, she wrote three books, I think, since her conversion. She's been a speaker in many, many places. And in March of this year, she uh, read a a study that was uh, conducted by Dr. DeMol, Dr. Christopher Rossig, who is the research guy on our board in the Alliance, and another uh, Dr. Paul Solon's three three excellent, excellent researchers on the issues of same-sex attraction. And Dr. Uh, Butterfield Rosario was a doctor as well. Dr. Butterfield read that study and made an apology to all of us who are professionals last March, and it was like 16 years after her conversion. And I'm di- I just tell you that story because for us who struggled hard in our profession, as you can imagine, we're not very popular in the American Psychological Association. Okay. Although, because of Dr. Sullins, Dr. Rosick, and a couple other st- uh, people who have done some excellent studies, the APA has backed off from saying that um, they have backed off the "born that way" myth. They just don't advertise it very. They don't want you to know that so quickly. But they, their uh, research committee has been forced to back off because of the good research that was that's been done. And so, praise God. praise God. Yeah, praise God. Yeah. Again, if you go read Judges 19, that's where our, our, so much of what we see on the media is sexuality in our world today. And yet, out of Judges 19 came Samuel, and out of Samuel came the greatest movement toward obedient um. Hebrews in the in the history of the world, and the kingdoms of David and Solomon flourished. So, yeah, it goes up and down. It's going to go up and down until the Lord comes again, makes us all new. That's for sure. All right.